the beneficiary of some of that sort of no, tell me. Uh, when I got stranded on South 348, uh, Thursday of the week of ice, uh, after leaving the church, there we go turns out that 348 is a solid sheet of ice by that time. And I made it about halfway down, and there was people in the ditch over here, and there was people in the ditch over here. And I thought, I'm going to end up in the ditch somewhere in between all these people. But this very nice couple, they, they stopped, and they pulled me to safety with their four-wheel drive truck. And I just abandoned my vehicle there and I walked home. So it was a very nice thing that they did. It was a, an example of the, the hospitality of Southerners, even if it's all But what I had, was really more surprised about during that time uh, and amazed by was how we can innovate ways to have fun. Fun. And I put this in quotation marks. Because if you participated in any of this sort of thing, and I did, did you know that fun sometimes is stretching what we actually do? You know, sometimes it's not the smartest or safest choices that we make. And watching all of that happen, participating in it myself, reminded me of this truth. There are times and there are things that we do that often you want to be the first one who goes. And you want to be the first one who says, yeah, I'll do that. But then there are other times where you want someone to go before you. You want someone to take that ride down that hill first. You don't want, you want to see somebody get to the end safely and well and unbroken before you yourself try to do that. So to sum it up, you need a forerunner. That's going to be a big word for us today because as we turn to Joshua chapter 3, we find that that's exactly what Israel needs as well. They need someone to go before them. As chapter 3 begins here, we find that the time to enter the promised land is imminent. But the officers of the people, they have gone throughout the camp and they have spread the word that in three days' time, Israel will finally go in. And I don't know that, that we can fully grasp or appreciate the sort of anticipation and the sort of excitement that that, that announcement will have caused among the people. You know, I'm tempted to compare it to a kid at Christmas or maybe even inheriting a large individual inheritance, but really what Israel is about to experience is something far greater than that. You know, this is a family inheritance. One that generations, all the way back to Abraham, had longed for, had anticipated, had put their hope in. You know, think back to, to Egypt, that, that generation before this one that is about to go in. The people were enslaved there. Pharaoh is making their lives almost intolerable. He is literally trying to wipe them off the face of the earth by killing the firstborn male babies there in Egypt. What do you think the Israelites comforted themselves with, at least in part, during that time? Day after day, they were working so hard. What do you think they sung songs about? Where was their hope in that time? Certainly, at least in part, it was in a land that was flowing with milk and honey. A land where they would be free, where they would be a nation. A land that their God had promised to give them. 
And now, finally, after all these trials, all this failure, all these years, the time has arrived. The camp, it has to be buzzing with anticipation. It has to be buzzing with excitement. That is, until they actually lay eyes on what barred their way in. The waters of the Jordan River. Now look, under normal circumstances, the Jordan River is usually 3 to 10 feet deep and maybe 90 to 100 feet wide. So something maybe like the Tallahassee River. That's how I randomly this week, Ben saw me walk down the hall and I was trying to measure out how big the Jordan River, I was trying to get it in my mind how big it was. So something like the Tallahassee River maybe. But notice there in verse 15, these are not normal circumstances. They have come to the Jordan at the time of the harvest, where rain and snow melt have caused the Jordan to overflow its banks. Now, under normal circumstances, these waters might be passable, but now, under these conditions, it would have been impossible for one man to cross, much less a whole great host of people to cross. And so the question, here on the verge of all they had waited for, is how will they get there? Will they just have to sit and wait till things settle down? Or will once again another trial be placed in their way? How will they enter in? Who will make a way for them? Friends, you know the answer because you know this story well. Their God ultimately will do it. What I want you to notice is how he takes complete center stage here and how he leaves no doubt what they have no hope of achieving for themselves. What Israel, what his people could never figure out, never overcome on their own. He is going to for them. And he's going to do it not just by snapping his fingers and saying, here you go. No. He's going to do it by going before them. He's going to do it by achieving the victory himself. What they need is a forerunner. And what I hope to show you by the end of this message today is that spiritually, that's what we all need. All of us are like Israel, standing on the wrong side of the Jordan River spiritually, with no hope to get across. And the question that remains for all of us is how do we get over there? We recognize that we need to be on the other side, but we can't get there. So how in the world do we get over? How do we get across? That's what I want you to think about. So let's look at it together. Three things we're going to see from this passage. Preparation, the plan, and the power. Three things, preparation, plan, and power. First, preparations. Now, we've already seen how the officers had gone throughout camp, notifying people of what was to come. But notice, they also asked them to do some very specific things before they go across. One, they command them to keep about 2,000 cubits. So that's about half a mile. Half a mile between them and the Levitical priests who will be ahead of them. Okay? So 
make sure you have this distance. And then secondly, Joshua commands the people to consecrate or, or sanctify themselves. And we know from other places that this process of consecration it would have involved washing their clothes, uh, probably making certain sacrifices, confessing their sin, and also abstaining from various activities. And it was all for the purpose of being set apart, of being holy unto the Lord. Now look, the truth is we might easily skip over those details. But it's interesting to me that the author took the time to record them. And I wonder why his, what was his motivation behind doing that? Why were his podcast people required to do these things? When we think about the distance, it could have simply been a practical reason, just to be able to see where the priests were going. Right? They needed enough distance to be able to see and follow with that number of people also to see what the Lord was about to do. So practically, it was a good thing for them to do. Really, I think it's more significant than that. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 19. If you've been reading through our Bible reading plan, then it was this week, I think, that we actually read through this chapter. So this should be fairly familiar to you. Uh, but you'll remember that Israel here has come to Mount Sinai, uh, and the people are looking to Moses, who, in verse 10, says this, Go, and be ready for the third day. Again, how long is it going to be before they go across the Jordan? Three days. That's what the officers of the church said. So, go. Uh, be ready for the third day, for on the third day. The Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Hear this. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. He shall be stumbled the child of beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast. They shall come up to the mountain. Moses went down to the mountain of the people and consecrated the people. And the thought he washed their garments. He said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Now go near one. It's the same preparation, right? It is the same thing that God called the people to do back in Joshua chapter 3. And why is it that, that God calls them to do that there at Mount Sinai? so that they might be able to, to see, to comprehend, and frankly be able to survive the presence of God on the mountain. Friends, the same thing is true here for the people at the Jordan. Joshua says, God is going to come and do wonders among them. He is about to show himself in all his glory. So they need to be prepared. Because I think in that, there is a very practical lesson for all of us. Particularly as we come here to worship today. Particularly as we come to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper next week. You know, thankfully in Christ, the distance that once, once stood between us and God has now been done away with. And the holiness that is required to stand before him 
before his throne of grace is now ours through Christ. In other words, we can come into God's presence freely and without fear because we come in the name of our Savior. But doesn't that truth, the truth that even now we stand in the presence of God, the presence of Jesus, doesn't that prove that next week he will come and he will commune with us by faith through the means of grace that he has pointed? Doesn't it increase our sense of anticipation? Doesn't it, it, it make us want to be prepared for what God will do and what he will show all the more? Again, those preparations that we, that we make, they're not to... Uh, make us worthy in God's sight. Only Jesus can make us worthy in God's sight. He want to lay aside the sin, that those encumbrances that, that well, entangle us, that weigh us down. I give up. We want to be wide-eyed and ready for this time spent with our Savior. Now, I'll confess to you that too often I come into worship distracted. Uh, without a clear focus on what the objective is. Look, this morning, we've been in the attic. We've had to drag out all of these things, these heaters around. We've had to do all of these things. This morning, Satan is doing all he can to distract us at every single moment. The truth is, is so many are showing up to churches right now Without a clear focus, without a clear objective of what they're there to do, they show up as passive participants, sort of idly sitting by during worship, and they leave wondering why they didn't get anything out of the service. Well, I say all that to say it could be because we come unprepared. We come not expecting to see God, to see His work. It could be because we come with the wrong objectives at heart. The objective is not primarily our benefit. The objective of what we've come to do here today is to glorify the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And friends, the, the wonder of it all is as we do that, He promises to meet with His people. He promises to be with us. So the question is, is are we prepared to meet with him? That begins, of course, with Jesus. It begins with the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And it is something that we are active in. And so the people, uh, they make these, these preparations here. And I would note just at the, the literary level, just as a reader of the text, what these preparations should do in our hearts is build anticipation for us as well. It sort of should build suspense. We know what God did in Exodus chapter 19 when these preparations were made. And so we should be anticipating something big here. God show up in a mighty and powerful way for his people. But we have first the preparations. Secondly, notice in this passage, the plan. God commands Joshua to set not just the priests before the people, but the priests bearing the ark before the people. And they are to go down into the Jordan, 
And when their feet touch the water, the waters of the Jordan, this, this raging river, they will be cut off. It will be heaped up before them, providing a way for people to pass through. God is promising in this plan a great miracle. What I want us to think about is why God chooses to act this way at this time. And he's the God of all creation. He controls and sets all things. Why, as if people come to this climactic point in their history, does he decide to, to put a raging river in their path? Why does he bring them into the promised land in this way? Notice the text. It gives us two reasons. One is focused sort of at the individual level. The other is focused on the people as a whole. But both of them point us to the same amazing and gracious truth. Notice there in verse 7, he says to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt not himself. He doesn't say, I, God, am going to exalt myself, though he will be. No. He says, I'm going to begin to exalt you, Joshua, in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so too I will be with you. Now look, on a practical level, this may not be all that unexpected. You know, we, we covered this over the first two chapters, but it's worth pointing out again that given the transition of leadership that has occurred, and particularly given all that lies ahead, conquering the promised land. It's probably wise for God to kind of hold Joshua up in the sight of the people so that they can see that God's presence is with him. And for him to do it in a way, parting the waters, that would immediately point their minds and their hearts back to the former leader, Moses. Uh, we can't miss the connection here to what happened at the Red Sea. But you know, I, I think more importantly than the people needing to be confirmed here, maybe just as importantly, Joshua needed to be confirmed here. He needed to know that God was with him. Yes, God had planned this transition. Yes, he had already affirmed it in several ways. But you know, there had to be moments of doubt for Joshua. Moments where he wondered, is this really my call? Am I really cut out for this sort of thing? In fact, I imagine he was having those sorts of doubts as he looked at that river. So how in the world am I supposed to get all of these people across there? He recognizes how unable he is. Surely, he recognizes that he has no hope to do what is before him. He's not sufficient for it, for this sort of obstacle. Joshua, not any man. That's the point. No, Joshua. This is why God has brought them here. No, Joshua, you can't do this. No man can do this. It is impossible for man. It's how kind and how gracious God is. Because what's impossible with man is not impossible with him. 
He knows our weakness. He knows our frailty. And so in his graciousness, he stoops down and he gives Joshua assurance. Yes, I am with you. And nothing, absolutely nothing, will stop what I have planned. And so it's an affirmation to Joshua himself, but it's also an affirmation to the people as a whole. In verse 10, Joshua comes to them and he says, this is how you're going to know that God is with you. This is how you know that he is going to drive out all the people of the promised land. His presence, his faithfulness is with you. And look, everything we said about Joshua, the doubts and the fears and the, the inability of the individual, we can say all of that about the people of Israel as well. What I really want you to think about how God shows them. How does he show them the truth that he's the one that's going to go before? How does he show them the truth that his faithfulness will not fail? Again, it's there in the ark. The, 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 the priests are to go down into the Jordan bearing the ark. Now, I've intentionally not said much about it up to this point, but I'm sure you've noticed in the text you're going to notice it again next week. In these two chapters, the ark is mentioned 17 different times. Outside of God himself, the ark is the central focus of all that is about to happen. My question to you is, what is the significance of the ark? Well, real quick, turn back with me again to Exodus chapter 25. Here, God is giving them the instructions on how to build the ark, on what it's going to look like, on what it's there for. And notice in chapter 25 and verse 22, he says this of the ark. There, on the ark, there, I will meet with you. God speaking. I will meet with you. From above the mercy seat and between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testament, I will speak with you about all that I will give you as man of the people of Israel. Friends, it was the ark that, that was in the most holy place in the tabernacle. It was there that God's presence would descend, where it would reside with the people as they wanted. So the point is that the ark, it symbolized God's almighty presence. With that info in hand, go back to Joshua chapter 3. When God commands the priest to carry the ark before the people, when they carry it down into the water, what is God really saying to them? He is saying, it is I, the, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who has called you, the one who has redeemed you. It is I who go before you. Yes, Israel, you are unable. Yes, you are weak. But you are not facing this with your ability. You're not facing this with your strength. No, just like I at the Red Sea led the people across, you will sit aside and you will watch. You will observe the real power and strength of your Savior. 
The real reason why you will be successful is because I, the living God, with you and will go before you. It's going to be that word again, their forerunner. Who shows you the way. I will be your forerunner who secures your passage. I'll be your forerunner who seals your victory. Friends, it's there. It's right there. We find the application for all of us today, for all of God's people throughout time and space. Here is the application right there. We can view it in two parts. All of us face challenges. All of us face trials and impossible situations in this life. We lose those we love. We, we face the, the loss of people. The circumstances hurt us. People hurt us. Our own sin threatens to undo us. Too often, the way forward, it seems impossible. Like Israel, we face our inability and we wonder, how can I make it through? Because the good news of the gospel is that God, the same God who went down into Jordan, who went before them there, he assures you even now, he is with you. In fact, in Isaiah 43, a passage that we know so well, he says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, you're getting ready to do it, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. The Holy One of Israel, your Savior. His presence, His power is with His people. And He will do what He has said. He will fulfill His promises. So look, that's one application of this passage. Be strong. Be courageous. Not because you are, but because you're God. He's with you. He's going to care for you. Second, and friends, this is this is really where the rubber needs to go. As with so many Old Testament passages, this is one that, that is a shadow. It's one that is a foretaste meant to drive us ahead to something else. Remember, I said at the beginning that all of us spiritually are standing on the wrong side of the Jordan. And to varying degrees, because Romans 1 says we all know the truth of God. Every single person ever born, we all know the truth. So to varying degrees, we all know that there is a promised land. There is a living God, and we need to be with Him. But none of us, in and of ourselves, can get across. Put it another way, all of us are sinners. Who have eternity in our hearts, and we are facing death. We're facing it with a complete inability to do anything about it. So the question remains how do we get across? How do we get to the promised land? Look in your bullet, if I can find mine, at the top, at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. There, the author says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope 
that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone out as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Friends, what we need is someone to go before us. What we need is a forerunner. Christ he is that someone at the cross and at the tomb. He entered into the waters. He entered into the raging river. He went down before us. Here's the good news. He won victory. He stopped those raging waters for all his people so that now in him we have a way across. This is what Paul makes such a big deal out of in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You remember there, he's talking about the essential nature of Christ's resurrection. He says in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. It is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In Christ we have hope in this life only. We of all people are most to be pitied. Then in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised. Right? He doesn't leave us, he doesn't leave us hanging there. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. It's a forerunner. Just like Adam was our federal head, and all in verse 22 have sinned in him. Now all are alive. In Christ, all who are trusting in Him, friends, our hope today, our peace today, in this life and in the next, rest in this truth. Christ, our great high priest, He is at God's right hand. And it is only through Him that we can know and see the way to the Father. It is only in Him that we can pass over the raging river that is before us. It's only through Him that we can find the power and the victory that we need in His grace and in His mercy. He came to earth. He took our infirmities. He lived a life of humiliation so that He, as our forerunner, might go before us. Friends, He's done the impossible. And to that, to that truth, that now he is seated at God's right hand. Now he is gone where we could never go to make a way for us. To that truth, we say with Paul there at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God who gives us victory, Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray together. Father God, we are so thankful for what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, this life is not easy. We face uncertainties. 
We face trials at every turn. We can see in reality that our sin is ever before us. And it has caused this, this great gulf span between us and you. Question always on our minds how will we make it through these trials? How, how will we make it through this next moment? How will we make it home to, to your side? Is the, God, that the question, the answer to it all lies in Jesus. In Him, we have hope of resurrection. In Him, we have hope that one day we will see you face to face. In Him, we have hope that this life is not the end, that as we face trials and hardships, He is with us, that He goes before us, that, that we do not fight this in our own strength. It's not a battle that we fight alone. He Savior, the forerunner, he fights for us. So God, strengthen us with that truth. Give us hope and assurance that passes understanding, knowing we rest in the Savior of the world, the one who is the end and the beginning, the beginning and the end, he is all things. Help us to rest fully in Jesus. So we ask him for his name.